Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Everybody, welcome to Students of Conflict. We are Clay and Doug. Hello! Hey! hey. <laughs> and we are going to try to become better Malifaux players. We want to level up ourselves and hopefully level others up as well. We generally do that by interviewing top third players from the Lone Star Conference playing in Malifaux tournaments across the U.S. We don't try to capture their entire tournament journey. We just want to take an in-depth look at a single game and then dive into the key decisions that they made before the game, during the game, and now that they're looking back at the game, uh, what were the things that they learned that they can pass on to others? Tonight, though, we've got a special treat. First, we're going to talk with Christian. Hey, everybody. Who came in second at the May Malifaux Monthly Tournament held in Houston on 13 May. And we're going to be releasing our discussion with him as episode seven. Then we're going to speak with Brian. Yo. And anyone who's ever played against Brian knows that he's got very solid card management skills and has been very successful with crews that can leverage that. Way back in episode two, he offered to do an episode with us where we could really dive into that topic. And tonight we're finally taking him up on that offer. Though it won't be one of our usual Better Malifaux One Game at a Time kind of episodes, we're really looking forward to releasing that one as episode eight. But for right now, we're going to start with Christian and turn it over to Doug. All right, let's do this. So, how you doing tonight, Christian? I'm doing all right. I've been uh, ready for this podcast for a while. Well, I am excited to uh, have you on here. I feel like you're, you know, someone who's been trying to climb the uh, the standings there in the tournaments and has been, you know, taking notes and learning and uh, doing better one game at a time. It makes it a lot easier when you got players like Brian constantly knocking you down a peg every time you get a little bit of a, a little bit of ego goes on. And then he last turn swipes two points and takes your soul. That's what I'm here for, dude. Only two. Wow. Hey, he must have been, you know, having an off day. <laughs> yeah, only two. He, he got lucky. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so this is your first time here. So I am excited to have you, as I said. But when we have a first time uh, guest, we like to ask them, what is your background in gaming? How did you get into Malifaux? So it started with I was playing Magic the Gathering when I was like 12 or 13. I played a little bit of tournaments then, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I just had fun looking at shiny cards. And uh, uh, pretty much after that, I ran into my buddy Ryan, I don't know. And uh, he, at that time, showed me model games just in general. And he, he used to come to the local game store and play board games with me. Years later, you know, we kind of lost touch, but then we rekindled, I think, when I actually became an adult, you know, getting closer to 17, and he got me into uh, board games. We played a lot of Rum and Bones, stuff like that, really just fun pirate games, and then he reminded me about this game he showed me years ago called Malifaux, and uh, so I just went to a store and bought some uh, Bayou stuff. I didn't know what it was, and I thought they looked cool, so I bought some Ulix, and that's how I got into Malifaux, and I've been losing ever since. Hey, but you did not do all that much losing this month. Yeah, you yeah. can't say if you got if you got second in a big tournament. Yeah, yeah, you oh, can't yeah. say you do nothing but losing when you went undefeated at a tournament. 
that's true. That's true. Uh, I, I, I'm very excited about that. Y'all can't see, but I got a massive smile on my face because, like, it was it was cool because I got to beat my Shifu and I went versus Nick the first time ever playing him and I beat him and I was like, oh my god, I, I beat another really good player. I was like so excited. Like, they didn't see it and I didn't want to seem like mean or cocky or anything, but I was like inside there was just a light. I was like, I finally went three zero in a tournament. That honestly, that that's a big one when when that happens when you finally go okay, I fucking did it. It always feels great. Yeah, that that first time is is like the best rush of like winning a tournament. Oh man, I, I just gotta go Nova and win all five. There you go. You gotta work on that. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the next year goal, right? Next yeah, we're, we're, maybe maybe yeah, this we're, year. Like it wouldn't be terrible this year, but that's a great goal for next year. Well, hey, I mean, so. the the, uh, the NAFT, uh, the uh, North American Faux Tour season is wrapping up here pretty soon. I can't remember if we are ending it at the end of June or the start of June. I can't remember for the last Hopefully the end, because then I just, uh, you know, I'm still trying to catch up. I saw the scores, and I'm not too far behind of getting a chance to actually join for the, the tournament. So hopefully the end. I actually need to go look and see where I'm at. You're very high up there. You're doubling my points <laughs> quite a bit. I'm decent in the, the land of the wild card at the moment. Future Doug here. The current NAFT season ends June 30th, 2023. The Masters Invitational Tournament takes place August 31st through September 1st at Nova Open. Details are in the show notes. But yeah, so uh, we've got a question here from Discord from Diceman87 also known as Jim, an occasional host of the Other Coast podcast, and an all-around awesome dude, what got you into playing the objectively best faction by you? Well, uh, I really love the art. So there's a one... So I had bought the rulebook, and then there's one page in the rulebook where uh, there is these green guys mugging a person for their shoes, and I thought it was epic. I love that art so much. And uh, I always liked orcs. Like my, my dad played 40K and uh, I always liked the way orcs looked. And so I was like, these guys are basically orcs, but you know, four foot tall. So let's like, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And from then on, you know, I looked at Wong art and I saw he stole a man's mustache and I was like, this is cool. I gotta, I gotta get into this faction. And you heard the call of the banjos. Exactly. The call of the banjos. Kind of, I'm stuck in that. Oh my god. (laughs) I didn't come here for this. (laughs) That is special for Clay. Yep. That uh, longtime listeners will know that I've been trying my darndest to turn this into a uh, Bayou podcast uh, since episode zero. And and today we finally get to do it. So I I am excited about that. So (laughs) anyways, no, that's awesome. Thanks, Doug. And I, I was ready with the banjos. Once again, I said, hey, it's your first time here, but you've listened to this. You know we like to do an icebreaker question. So, the icebreaker question for you today, Christian. How do you like to break the ice when you're playing a game? Uh, most of the time, I uh, walk in there with like my shoulders pumped up. You know, I try to squeeze my opponent's hand really hard, look them in the eye. I don't know. Whatever You've the best I can to, to me. What are you talking about? No, no. <laughs> I, I try to. I don't know. I I really like people a lot, and I enjoy the game. So most of the time, I'm already laughing before I got to the table. I just 
Hey, you know, that's the that's the spirit of the game, and we're here to have fun. And like, it's really hard to be upset, you know, when like I get to spend all day doing like playing the game I really love. So most of the time, I just shake their hand, ask their name if I've never met them before. But now nah, I'm pretty well in the community, so if I if I haven't met them, then I've probably heard of them. Cool. All right. Well, you know, let's get started talking about the May Houston tournament, in which you placed second place. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. So which round of the tournament are you going to be talking about and why? I had a lot of trouble with this one because I really wanted to talk about round three. But um, since Nick couldn't be here, um, you know, I, I just thought I was going to play do round two instead because it was a game versus uh, the person who got me into Malifaux. Uh His name is Ryan Cruz. Shout out to Ryan if you're listening to this. Friend of the show. I chose this game. Because I played absolutely terribly on round one, and I uh, I did a really big comeback, and uh, that's why I wanted to talk about this round. Is that like uh, probably more about not giving up than it is anything? Uh, so round two is why I chose that one. Cool. So kind of we're uh, starting out, taking the you know hundred yard out look at this. What were some of the biggest lessons and themes from this game? Number one, don't bury both your miners first and second activation versus Terra. That's number one. Don't do that. If you are anybody that has half a brain, you won't do that because you will lose them on third and fourth activation. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. You buried models of your own accord against yes. the most infamous berry master in this game. Amen. And I just, it's worse than that. Wait, 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 wait. And you won. And I brought the game back. That's right. But <laughs> I remember you telling me this as I was walking by the table and you and Ryan just cracking up about it. I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well for Christian. I assumed it was a loss for the first, like, first, like, uh, okay, it happened. Got to the end of the round, and then like there was a moment where I was sitting there, I was quiet, I was a little angry at myself, and I was like, I was like, okay, they're dead, whatever, move on, let's get it, let's try to win this thing. And that's whenever I turned it into high drive right there. Okay, here's the question on that though. Was that the ultimate power flex move? Of the <laughs> hey, you're playing Terra, I am burying these models. <laughs> Goodbye <laughs> to twelve stones starting the game. Like just hate that. Yeah, you're like, you're like oh, oh, old sensei. I can beat you twelve stones down. Watch me. <laughs> Watch me. And, you know, it, it was like, dude. It was funny because we just got back from lunch and we were literally like, he goes, he goes. We just talked about like how I'm not gonna bury those two models, and I just I have this innate thing where I I don't like to waste time. I utilize my first turn to really get an advantage on time, and I just autopilot first activation, second activation, third and fourth dead. I was like, oh god, what did I just do? And the thing is, he was looking at me when I did the first time. He was looking at me like, are you gonna catch it? Okay, no. You're gonna do it again? Okay, no. I was like, dude, I'm so dumb. Like, I, I literally, if I didn't have a like, ball cap on, it would have, it would have not hid the red mark from me smacking my forehead so hard. Like, it was bad. But you won. Yeah, I won. That is awesome. Uh, the theme for this game is not giving up, guys, because it's it's worth it. It's like you can win a game just because you did something really dumb. It's Malifaux. Things happen, and you can easily win. 
I wouldn't say easily. Let me take that back. Not easily win, but you can you can win. It's just it's going to take a lot. Yeah, the don't give up theme is fantastic though. So this game you ended up winning four to two. So it was a pretty close game. Yeah, it was. Um, our game was cursed objects. Um, oh, did, did we actually? Are we about to talk about? We that did right not. Now? But I think it sounds about a good time to discuss what the game was and what y'all brought to the table. The the pool was cursed objects. Um, we had assassinate. Uh, spread them out. We had uh, sabotage, uh, catch and release, and set the trap. And it was on wedge deployment. And the map we were on was shipwreck and uh, shipwreck beach, which is my favorite. I, I really wanted to play that map. I love anything that has to do with pirates and ships. You're welcome. Yeah. So I had picked for this game. I had picked the assassinate, which normally you don't do versus Terra, but I was pretty. I I wouldn't say confident, but. I was pretty sure that I would at least get the first point and uh, that Maul could, ch- could uh, chase her down, you know, if I focused enough on it. And then I went for the spread them out. Now Ryan went for sabotage and spread them out, which uh, he definitely scored the spread them out. I was not stopping that. There's no way. Um, but uh, those are those are our schemes. And those are the pools. Um, did, did we talk about the list now? Well, talk about your list. What what did you bring? We already know that you kind of brought two Soulstone Miners, but you, <laughs> you didn't really. You weren't in the game. So I run a pretty tight uh, pretty tight crew. I like uh, Ma Tucket. I always throw 12 cups on her. Uh, little ass is a given. Uh, Sparks, he is really good. I like him. Rock Hopper, I, I love that model. He's It's so crazy how often his bonus gives you Soulstones. And uh, Mecha Pork Chop and Bow Fishbacher. Those are the main ones. And then the two Soulstone Miners. That's my main lineup. And uh, I was running into Ryan's standard list, uh, which is the Nothing Beast, Talos, Pride, Sign of the Void, Prospector, uh, Prospector 2. And then they have two upgrades on them. I forget the name of the upgrades. Uh, does anybody know? Wanna Criminal. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so he runs a very, really, like a really strong list, and my guys have low willpowers, so I was really afraid of the Nothing Beast and the berries. Thought I was really going to take control of the game. But you, you didn't have to worry about him burying you. You took care of that yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I took that, and I spent cards for it. Even better. <laughs> but you made him spend AP. Because yeah. that's a flex move right there. That's right. That's right. Right. Now, you can't see it, but these tiny muscles are flexing. All right. Jesus. <laughs> there you go. So, so actually, I have a question. Why, why Mall Two? So in Bayou, we have a really great tradition. It's called no armor, no resistance at all. They, well, the only ones that have a chance is Affilio with shielding. Everybody else doesn't have really any. Like other crews, like Rezzers, a lot of their models have armor. Or incapor or not? Sorry, uh, what's what's it called? Hard to wound. Hard to wound. And then there's another one where like they can go through walls and stuff, and it reduces down to zero. I think it's incorporeal, right? Well, like all the other factions, if you look, uh, a good chunk of them have really good, uh, really good armor models. Well, Maw has armor too, but she also has armor piercing built in, and you can't declare resistance triggers. And um, also the two soulstone miners have it, and as well the rock hopper. And I really like that because it's they're a little tankier, and that's something you don't find often in uh, in Bayou. And with that, I feel like it gives you kind of a leg up. And as well, Ma too has this really cool ability where she ignores vertical distances, most terrain, 
and she can't be staggered. She has a really, like, that's uh, really strong, in my opinion. And then she has a special trigger called Secret Tunnel on her dropping a pit trap. So it kind of can kind of, like, surprise teleport people in extra or, you know. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you want me to run down everything because, like, there's a lot I really like about her. She has a lot of cool things. Also, she has the scorpion get over here on her gun. That's awesome. And she's also got that that sneaky little get the hell out of here the uh, the scatter scatter. Which Oof. when I when I've played against you with Mecha that was unexpected. Yeah, you think I'm gonna smack you, and then I don't. I push you off the point. Scoring the points. Points is more important than killing. Heck yeah. To kind of following up on that too is, uh, and this kind of goes to part of a question from Dice Man again, and that's under what kind of circumstances, are there any circumstances where you would take Ma 1? Um, or are you just like, no, I am one trick in Ma 2. I've got a list that I like, and I just, there's really no pool, no circumstance, no opponent where I would want to take Ma 1 instead. No, uh, before I trigger anybody, because I know I'll probably trigger people with this statement. This is my personal opinion, so if you don't agree with it, it's totally fine. I think that Maul one is very viable. We have a disclaimer at the end of the show. It's okay. Okay, cool. I think that Maul 2 in pretty much every pool, every circumstance is better. They have close to the same life totals, but you don't have 2-inch reach. You don't have armor. You don't have... It's She has a cool... Maul 1 has a cool ability and has good draw mechanics, and I really like that, but ultimately... It's not that big of a deciding factor for me that I care too much about that. It's like a lot of people will talk about, oh, you can give your focus to your old team. Well, as well as Maul 2 has the same ability. She can target a scrap marker, and with a crow trigger, she can pulse out focus to everybody. So I can bury miners with double focus. And she's got more, uh, she may have a lower defense, but that armor 2 comes in clutch. Like, I, there's been many times that armor two just say it's like armor two and one stone. You did nothing to me. I didn't even flinch. Oh yeah. I've been there on the receiving of that in one of our games. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, you turned that game around, but that was a cool moment. Uh, I felt cool. I was like, I'm going to win this. And then you turn around. I was like, all right, like that's what I get for mentally talking <laughs> shit. <laughs> I will stop thinking now, <laughs> but uh. yeah. She has that, and then another thing that is really amazing about uh, Matu is 2-inch melee. 2-inch melee, and she has very good utility. It's cool to draw cards. It really is. It's cool to have it on your abilities. It's cool to have diving charge, but you can't beat, I personally believe, you can't beat armor-piercing built-in because mo- a good chunk of models have armor. You just immediately redu- like you just immediately stop them from being able to reduce your damage. It's almost requiring soul stones. You know, and then you get, they can't declare triggers resistance. Like Zoraida 1, who can just end your activation, can't happen. You know, you've got, uh, there's a small ones that, that work with it. But other than that, I'm not going to go too far into that. But basically, she's a great model overall. I really like her. And she's a cool looking model, honestly. Oh, the, the spoon on the back of the spider is so cool. The spider machine or the spider tank. I like that. So uh, we, we do have a uh, amusing question from Finn on Discord. So how many Bushwhackers did you take, and why wasn't that number three? <laughs> okay, so basically Bushwhackers are very cool models. I like the way they look. I have them in my shelf. I don't think they'll ever leave my shelf, but I think that uh, they'll, they'll stay in there. 
they were really cool. It's basically they're five five and they can from the shadows and drop pit traps and they do have crit strike on their gun. They have stealth. That's very cool. But in the eyes of majority of like henchmen enforcers whatever these models are are nothing to them they have they die quick they you go versus one misaki crew and you'll see how quickly you'll regret taking them and it's you want models that can survive you don't want models that are going to yeah they can do stuff but it it's you have to be very careful and you can't play as risky you can't really push the point as easily they, they don't have things like a lot of other crews have, like Parker has positives to shoot into combat. They don't ignore anything on their gun, really. So it's not that it's a bad gun, it's just that it's an okay gun. And when I'm looking at something that's going to do damage or, I don't know, scheme, you know, I'm looking at a Ciliarid. It's got leap. You know, it's got it, interact, leap, interact. I'm looking at something that can really score you points. Or I'm looking at something like a Rockhopper, two armor, Two-inch melee, can push if it's not around people, it has ride the rails, it can pop up, you least expect it. It's got utility that can work with the crew, whereas a guy that's, you know, he's got five wounds or six wounds, one severe, that guy's dead. You know, one activation, two men, three damages, goodbye. But you got a rock hopper, two men, three damages is nothing to him, you know? And uh, they're pretty much virtually the same point cost. One extra point, and you get a model that's going to survive multiple rounds. Okay. So now, um, you would mentioned that uh, Ryan's list was pretty much his bog-standard terror list. Uh, your Mecha Meemaw list here. Did you make any uh, tweaks to your list because of your opponent, the terrain, the pool? Or is this more of a kind of bog-standard Matu list for you? Uh, this is bog standard. I made a deal with Ryan that until I made it to top table, I would play this crew every single game for every single tournament. Who knew it would have been the second tournament I played in it with it, but... So uh, uh, you made the deal to not modify the crew? Yeah, not okay. modify or play anything else. Just Maw 2. It's an interesting deal you made. Yeah, can you talk through the, the thought process on that? I know that Ryan has has been very successful with a bog standard list, but but yeah, can you just talk through that for... Especially for listeners. I'm I'm newer. I'm, I think I'm about to hit eight months. I think next month is my eighth month in the game. I haven't been playing very super long. And I think it's very important that you clear up as much headspace as possible. Like, it's basically, if you are still learning the game, and you have to worry about every time you change to think about what you're doing. And then I got to think about, like, I, when I played Brian, I had no clue what half his models did. And I was I was pretty scared of this crew because I didn't I I kind of seen the master, but I I didn't know. And he had this crazy thing where it's like he can basically I can ignore his pyro, but then I can't. And it's like, you know, all the stuff like that. So I think it's a lot easier to just focus on your crew, learn your crew. I didn't have to think in the game, even though I should have thought about not burying my stole stone miners, but it was like, in, in that case, it's like, I know what my guys do. I know my stats. I know all my stat lines, know what I need to do, what position to be in. What is my goal for the game where I'm going? It's like, I have one game plan. It's I'm going to try to teleport my whole crew on one of your best models and try to kill it. That's the only game plan. And you can either play around it or you can't. And that's the, that's, it so with that i don't have to think about that so now when i look at your cards all i'm thinking about is what you can do it's no longer what about what i can do that's actually really good for newer players i highly advise doing this for new players 
Um, because it, like Krishna was saying, whenever you know your own crew forwards and backwards, you can invest more time in looking at what your opponent is doing and figure out what your opponent is trying to do. Um, and that's something that experience ha- experienced players have over newer players when they're getting onto the tables. I know my six primary crews and how they all operate, so I don't have to think about any of my actions. I just have to look at your stuff, figure out what you're doing, and I can counter it. Six primary crews? Bro, I'm lucky I know my one. Oh bro, my I've been playing this game for five years. Like, it's, <laughs> it's all... It's yeah. nothing. But, I mean, it, it, it will help everyone grow and be better players if they get a single crew and win or lose, you grind it out until you're no longer having to look at your own cards to figure out your game plan. Um, but... That's just my two cents on that. So now uh, we do have a question from uh, the Reg Duke over on Reddit. Um, I'm not sure if uh, that's like his that official name. title or his name, but you know, ultimately, I love that name. Just gotta say, put that out there, the Red Duke. Um, <laughs> anyway, so do you think Mecha Mima or Sparks, in both cases, for the Scrapyard Mines aura? is a requirement to run either Survivors or the Rock Hopper? And or do you think they're a requirement for her? Basically, do you think a Mecha Mima list should look substantially different to a Ma 1 list, or could they both bring different things to the same table? Obviously, you didn't bring Survivors here. No, I didn't bring Survivors, but I have played them. Actually, I did do a test game beforehand, trying, because I, I had a feeling I was going to go versus Ryan. I was very afraid, because Bai has low willpowers. My master doesn't, but everybody's got, like, fours and threes, right? So I wanted to try a tester. I didn't like changing my list, because I was going to surprise Ryan. But I ended up telling about it, because it blew back in my face horribly. I ran Survivor and uh, Trixabella to replace the two Soulstone Miners. Uh, to try to negate the fact that he uses willpower, which is was a dumb idea anyways. It's just sticking, you know. Uh, basically, I think that having units that support better, I think Sparks is a necessity, and I think that Rock Hopper is a necessity, if this, if this answers the question properly. But uh, I think they are. They are required to be with Mecha Meemaw because survivors are cool, but they, they have good ways to survive, but they don't really do a lot, in my personal opinion. They don't have a good at melee. It's a zero-inch reach. It's like they got to be right in your face. It has stagger built in, but it's like a stat five. It's 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 average. And it's like with the Rock Hopper, you get stat six, you know, and then uh, you get a lot more juice for an extra, like, point, I think, or two points. It's like you get way more out of it, and uh, I personal, personally prefer that. And also, I really like the utility out of the bonus. That utility is amazing. I went first Karai, and the Vengeance couldn't hit me back because the bonus prevented out-of-combat damage. And it's just, that one game was uh, like a perfect storm. But then the secondary would be the Sparks thing. I think Sparks is a a must-have in every, in every, whatever you're playing, uh, Maw list. He's ridiculously good, and uh, I don't think he's, He's busted or anything, for sure. But for Bayou, I think he's a great model. Hostile work environment, amazing. It worked wonders in my third round. He couldn't. He was playing the Indiana Jones model, and he couldn't pass any of his equipments to each other because he couldn't target his own guys from hostile work environment. And it's just an amazing thing. You're really stopping people from healing within your, your bubble because they have to target their friendlies and other things like that. It's a really good lockdown tool, personally. So, yeah, I would say uh, Rock uh, rock Hopper and Sparks are always a must-have. So, before the game started here, what was your game plan 
other than, you know, flex and bury those uh, Soulstone Miners. I, if you guys can laugh at me, and Ryan will probably, I can't remember all the way, and most of the time I'm not really thinking too much on the game. I'm very excited, and like, I'm kind of like a chihuahua. I, I, I'm like, I kind of shake and shiver, and I just like, sometimes, I get too, I get too cluttered in my mind, and I'm thinking about everything, you know, the sodas in me from lunchtime, you know, like, I'm, I'm a little bobbly, so I would say like, a, 75% of it's in the game, 25%'s like clouded a little bit, so I, I try to stick to my game plan. I look at my schemes, and I look at my strats, I'm like, okay, I have to kill things, so I'm going to look for the easiest target to kill that can get me this point ASAP. Yeah, so so what was your game plan for this specific game then? I, I had to do spread them out, and I had to do assassinate. Those are my two. And he did a really weird... He, it's not weird, it was smart for him. He did a really weird to me, like I'd never seen it before. We were in flank, and on the board, he took all his guys, all his beaters, and he deployed them all the way to the bottom right corner of the flank. He deployed his Terra center of the flank, like literally directly center behind a tree. And then he put the Scion of the Void directly in the very center peak of the, the, the wedge. And then the final thing he did was he put one of his... Uh, Pick guy with the pickaxe uh, all the way to the left, a prospector. It was a weird formation. I don't know what the, like, I didn't know his game plan. I do now because we talked a lot about it, but at the time I didn't know it. So my game plan was like, okay, he can't declare triggers on the Scion of the Void. I'm going to try to hit that guy as quick as possible because he's my easiest target and I want to control the center of the board. I can't, I, I don't know what he's going to do. So I'm going to try to just run it at him. So my game plan was that, was just to force my bubble into his face and him have to respond to my dance. And that, that was really my game plan. Okay. Now, you've obviously played against Terra before, and you know that Terra is basically a scheme machine. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a plan on how to stop the Terra scheme machine? So there was two things to it. One, I thought that she had a leap. It's called time slip for all of you later in the future. That is not a bonus. So 12 cups of coffee does not stop that. It does not. I thought it did. So my game plan was mob beat face. And it did not do that. He got away many times, but luckily I'm all terrain vehicle, baby. So I was, I was right there behind them cheeks. I was chasing it. And he had put a sabotage point like right there in the center where my bubble was. So he kind of pushed the fight towards me. And um, where the game really worked in my, my, my favor when it came to like dealing with that scheme machine was that his, since he put a sabotage right in the middle of my crew, I picked up on hints that he was going for sabotage early and I immediately went to shut it down. Uh, I, at the moment I figured out that I saw there was two on both sides of this wall, well, 12 cups of coffee gives you a bonus. You can munch those. And I'm a size four. Uh, size four. I'm bigger than everything on the map. It makes it really easy to get to these things. And uh, I just focused all my efforts on trying to prevent his. And while he was slowly trying to bring his troops in, but what played against him was he deployed so far back to the left that none of his really big models could come into the actual fight of what was happening. So it was more like I was fighting summons and just Hera. It wasn't, it wasn't as scary for me. So, um, do you know why he actually did that, as you put it, weird deployment? We've talked about it, but I forgot some of it. So, like, 
I I remember he was telling me he was doing it because he was trying to do uh this like he wanted to do the spread out and he wanted to control like the left side of the board for his spread them out and I just I I remember me thinking like I don't really want to fight cuz I'm kind of tired so I just deployed on kind of like the more rider side of the wedge and stayed on the right side of the board so I didn't have to fight him and uh he he wanted to sweep that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do like he wanted to drive all the way from the left to get his spread out and then just run at my crew immediately uh, with his like his annoying pride aura and, you know, so sweep you from, you know, right to left or whatever. Yeah. And but he, I guess his game plan kind of messed up because turn one, I used little last to push him all like 10 inches to his face. And I was I was center line to like fourth activation using after I lost my two drills. He was spent a lot of time using high cards to kill uh, kill those miners, which did denied him points later in the game for those those cursed objects. So it kind of bit him. Uh, it, I wouldn't say terribly, but it did stop him from scoring those points. Uh, so I don't really get his like. I didn't get it all the way, honestly. I just uh, I know he had told me, and I'm sure later he's gonna he's gonna laugh at me for not remembering, but. Well, that that actually brings up an interesting rules question that I'm kind of wondering about here. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. So, cursed objects. I'm assuming he put uh, uh, cursed tokens onto both of the soulstone miners. Yep. Now, he killed them turn one, so he's not going to get any points from those. Now, normally, the cursed token passes to the nearest model. What happens when a model is buried and it has a curse token? I thought that that was actually in the rules. One sec. I believe this is what we did, me and him, but definitely this could have been wrong. What I did was I just decided which ones they went to. Wait, wait. uh, It specifically says if the killed model is buried, its tokens are instead placed on any models in the same crew chosen by that cruise owner. Awesome. So I did it right. I put them both on Maltucket. Yeah. And that's one thing that I have not ran into in Cursed Objects yet was, hey, someone died when they were buried and it wasn't something that counted for a point. That has not happened to me yet. So, hey, it's right there in the thing. Small point. Uh, I'm going to push again. Don't bury your miners into Terra. Just reminder, just in case if y'all forgot anywhere in this podcast, don't do it. It's I don't care that I lost those and it kind of worked out in my favor. Any other day, any other day, that's it would have been horrible. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about it in hindsight. That I think it was a, while you may have done it on autopilot, doing it in curse, he's put the curse tokens on those. Burying them is just asking, like, hey, kill me when you know that's not going to score him any points. Uh, you're still denying 12 soul stones, but it's like you're losing points because they're easy guys to kill. But it's like, you know, that's a hard call to make. You know, he could have maybe mangled them a little bit and waited a turn or. You got him caught up in the bloodlust, though, on that. Hey, yeah. oh, someone made this stupid decision against Terra. <laughs> and then he's like, OK, I'm going to invest a lot of effort into it, which it sounds like investing that much effort kept him from executing his plan. And denied in the points on those cursed objects. Yeah, see, Christian, you were just thinking ahead to Ryan making <laughs> the, mistake, the mistake of killing 12 stones turn one as a benefit for Ryan, but really it was a benefit for you. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> totally. Next level this play. Brought to you by Christian right here. Uh, actually, it, there was an interesting point, though, that it did work out in my favor because since I had less models, I gained a 30 minute time lead on him. So I had so many pass tokens and he had so many summons that I timed him out and it ended up giving me oh. the ability to just play the game out by myself. That's interesting. Oh. That's so it thing. did play later very well. He denied himself two points, and then it gave me this massive time. I was just pass his time. Pass his time. I had like five pass tokens at one point. And since he didn't, like, I think it, the turn he didn't have a lot. He was more focused on the sabotage and not trying to kill my stuff that I got away with, like, not taking any damage and just utilizing time advantage uh, towards the end. So by the beginning of round four, he had, like, two minutes and 30 seconds, and he had no time to play the rest of his the round four out, it was just the start. And it, it was clear board for me. So instead of doing like, you know, just burning that 30 minutes of just like trying to like maximize, we just talked talked out the points and I would have killed his Terra uh, because I believe in the time rules, you can't cheat either. Can't so cheat either, I, yeah. I had put a cursed object and my second assassinate point, I scored the first one on her. And so that was kind of like, that's where it gave me the extra two points. Yeah, that's awesome. For we have a bunch of listeners that don't necessarily use clocks in their play. Um, we've been using them for quite a while here in uh, in Texas Meta. Um, and could you just talk real quick, Doug? Just kind of, a, or 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 you, Christian, just a piece on kind of what happens when somebody times out. Uh, how we play that here in Texas, as well as up in Washington and and elsewhere. So um, I've got a link to the rule sheet we use for the clocks. Uh, it is, I will have that in the show notes. Uh, we did an episode on this with uh, Ambrose a little while back. Uh, Ambrose uh, from out in the Pacific Northwest. He was the guy who convinced me uh, to give clocks a try. And uh, important thing to note is that it is not a death clock for the game here. And honestly, most of the time when I've played a game, it is very rare that a player gets a 30-minute advantage. Usually you're within about one or two minutes of each other. Um, at least in the games I've played. Yeah, I don't and, think I've ever timed out personally. Um, or had, had a game where I was timed out. I think I've had like one game where I timed out, but it was after I'd activated my last model and it was on turn five. But um, all right, as far as tournament games, not friendly games, I've clocked out in friendly games a bunch. But um, I mean, your friendly games take four hours. So well, no, yeah. See, with the, with the clocks, in general, the uh, friendly games go fast. You can actually get in two games on a Thursday night. <gasps> but yeah, so the the clocks end up fixing most of the problems I have run into as a TO because ninety percent of the issues that people bring up to me during uh, tournaments is talking about their opponent slow playing them or their opponent having a disproportionate amount of time and having an even amount of time really does help to make the game even. It takes a little bit of adjustment to get to clocks, but honestly, I love them now. I was very anti-clock for a long time, but it keeps me on my game. It makes it so that I don't have to, you know, second guess myself. I'm like, no, no, just go with that first thought. Okay, here we go. And yeah, so clocks are awesome. Love you, Ambrose. Thank you for uh, turning us on the clocks. So uh, yeah, hey, during the game. So what were some interesting lines of play 
and key decisions that happened during the game? Um, Other than burying your Solstice yeah. Miners is the ultimate flex. So there was a point where uh, I had scored early. I scored on round two. I scored my, he had made summon a, a, a Void Wretch, uh, which is, I don't know if y'all guys know, it's a 4 HP model. It's got Incorporeal, very easy kill. But every time you summon, you have the decision as an opponent to allow a cursed object to go on that person or not. And considering most of his models were out of the way, I absolutely wanted those cursed objects on those summons. It is very devastating for summons and cursed object pools because a lot of times, not every time, but some factions have drawbacks with summons. They get a lot either they're weaker models or there's a lot of there can be a lot of drawbacks to it. And especially for Ulix, because all of his pigs are very squishy. Because they're made of bacon. Yeah. <laughs> Delicious. But uh adding Adding them there really gave me fuel, so I didn't have to go far for my cursed objects. His guys were so far out of the way, but his more squishy ones were in the center of my bubble. Yeah, it, it's like, I agree with that. Uh, as a general, yeah, I, sh I shouldn't take any summons into cursed objects. I wanted to ask about that a little with, Ta with Tara, and just, she's one summoner that I might think of, her or Dreamer, that I might think of taking into cursed objects, and I'm not sure if that's smart, so I'd like some thoughts on, on that. I was going to say Dreamer is a solid summoner to bring into Cursed Objects. And it's it's because, at least in, with Tara and, and Dreamer, they come in buried. And so you don't have to bring them onto the board until the next turn to where then they can like pop up next to somebody, interact, hand off their summon token right there. Does that, is that like great in theory, but doesn't work in practice? Or was Ryan bringing them in the turn that he summoned them? Or how how... Why did that not work for him when in my mind it would work great? So he, he did uh, basically what it, that was the only void wretch. So that one, that one small scenario actually did help me in that case to get it that point. But in the, in general void hunters is what he summons. And those are hard for me to kill. I didn't have a card higher than 10 and I got that 10 in the fourth round. All game I had eights and nines. So I did not focus on killing too much because Void Hunters have like 7 HP, terrifying. I have low willpower. They require a high moderate to get through. He has pride. I cheat. Goodbye cards, you know. And it's a, a rule of thumb for that is like I got to have a moderate to get through the terrifying, a severe to get, get a good attack off, and then I have to have a severe for damage. And so in my eyes, it actually pays off more for him to summon them because it's... He, there's more bang for his buck in that scenario. But in general, if it had been any other crew, like somebody that has better willpowers, no, you do not want to summon into cursed objects too much. Not unless it's like a guarantee safe play and you use that guy to like go scheme run or like you said, get rid of the cursed onto somebody. But that's my personal opinion. That's cool. Thank you. So uh, kind of going back like the same thing, like he summoned that one. It gave me a free, it gave me an option to get a free point early. I wouldn't say free. I work for it. I used my my low moderates to to burn down. I it took like three three activations to finally kill it. Took all of Maul's turn. Took all of my rock hopper's turn, and it took Sparks obeying to kill this four HP model. It was very depressing, but I got the point, baby. I got. Yeah, they're done that. <laughs> yeah, it was like it, the, my hand was terrible all game, and I didn't. I was thinking the minimum. Like I was like, you know what? 
I may not score too many curse. So my goal is I'm going to prevent, I'm going to try to prevent him from getting as many cursed as possible or doing things that's going to, uh, scoring, but he actually didn't focus on the, the cursed objects very hard. So it really gave me the opportunity. He was more worried about spread them out. He got his spread them out on the left-hand side of the board and I knew I couldn't prevent it. And I was pretty sure I knew what he was going for. He had dropped like six markers on my side of the board. And so I knew I could deny the right-hand side, but I could not deny the left-hand side. And uh, normally the thing is most people do is they chase the bubble, the big bubble with all the shiny models in there because they want to kill. But me, I, I decided uh, I have ride the rails uh, for most of my models. I got a lot of scrap markers in my back line. I can, I'm going to chase the rabbit, and that's what I did. I stuck on Terra the whole game, and it worked. Uh, it really did work because she is one of the key... I couldn't stop the spread them out, but I knew he couldn't get to my models for the cursed objects, and the ones that he could get to, he killed turn one. So therefore, I didn't have to worry so much. He's never going to use Terra to attack. Like, it's rare, at least Ryan specifically. He uses her to score, and that's the, a very valuable thing to do. But I, in that circumstance, he was just summoning, and uh, he was summon. He would drop a drop a marker, and then he'd leap away. And in that time, I, my maw was walk, charge, attack. It was That was just every round. It was just walk, charge, attack, 12 cups of coffee. He can't make me fast, so he couldn't summon anything on my key models. If he did, I scattered, pushed him off of me, chased him. And I really hammered on holding his points away. Um, and I knew that I had to assassinate. So that turn one, or sorry, turn two, I scored my uh, main point and then my assassinate point. And then turn three was kind of like a stale of, he scored his, spread them out. Um, he didn't score any more cursed objects the rest of the game. I think he scored a second part of spread them out, but I, I knew I couldn't stop it. So all I did was I just kept my models away. He kept bringing nothing beast closer, Talos closer. I just ran away because I had the lead and I knew I was like, he's running out of time. I was watching his clock. So I started playing faster the best I could. I saw, and and this might've been, uh, in my personal opinion, I, I, I really tried to focus on the clock because every round I had a good 20 minute to 30 minute lead for all three of my rounds. And, um, I was really focused on the clock this time because I knew what my crew could do. So I didn't really want to waste time thinking I got, it was round three. He had like four summons, three summons on the, on the, on the board. He kept making my guys fast and I wasn't denying it. And so I was just passing pass. As soon as I got a pass, I didn't use it for initiative. I didn't care. I just passed, passed, passed. And so it got to a point where it burned him down where he was so, he got complacent, stuck on that sabotage point. And all my models were there. He couldn't he couldn't really do anything. That it was just my war pig riding the rails, or sorry, uh, my mecha pork chop riding the rails, charging Terra at just hitting her for the minimum two damage. Master keeping her engaged, hitting her for that. He would be burning both his activations. He couldn't really use his hunters because I was uh, engaging both of them with two people. So he couldn't, you know, that you can't ignore interacts. So you can only ignore one engagement. You can't if there's two people. So, like, I was really trying to lock him down the best I could. And um, also, uh, Sparks, I forgot what Sparks did, but basically I just kept healing my model so he couldn't kill him. Sparks and uh, Bo Fishbacher, they just sat there healing every round. Uh, there was only one time I attacked, and it was to use the noodle, the noodle trigger that destroys markers to heal too. And so I could uh, hit, I think it was Terra or it was like Talos, one or the other, uh, to 
deny his scheme marker. But that was it. I only played denial. Once I took my lead and I saw his time was going to be up, it started round four, and that was it. He just he decided it was game over there. It was going to be my assassinate point and my uh, cursed cursed object. And now that I think about it, I could have got spread them out too. But it it was it was already said and done, and you know I wasn't gonna push it. I was already hungry. So um, for this game, what would you say your uh, MVP model was, and why? Soulstone miners. Uh, <laughs> oh, don't even. <laughs> I'm just kidding, dude. They changed the course of that game. Um, my MVP model had to be Ma Tucket. Or Bo Fishbacher, so I'm really torn because there was a point where she did suffer some damage, and a bunch of my models suffered damage. Like, he hit the Rock Hopper a bunch of times and got him, I think, to 2 HP, and it just was Sparks... Oh, sorry. Ah, those are the two. I didn't mean to say Maw. It was Sparks and Bo Fishbacher. With two healers on tanks, you're just... Unless you focus those healers, they're never dying. Like, it's really hard. Unless you got Joss, which is irreducible, five or six damage. It's, like, really hard to take those models out. And I just kept my healers on standby constantly. So I really go for the the Sparks, I would say, was the MVP. Uh, giving extra AP to kind of get my Maw where she needed to be. She got buried uh, at one point, but it didn't really matter too much because he would just, he would, uh, I punched, I forget, Talos, I think, and dropped the scrap marker to allow my other guys to teleport in and allowed himself to ride the rails out and like, just small things like that. It was no like major play. It was it was more of a boring game. We weren't really punching each other a lot. We were both just trying to score. You know, I think I only attacked Terra and that one Void Wretch uh, pretty much the whole game. So the MVP would be Sparks because uh, he healed, I think, eight wounds and just from meleeing. And that for me, that's huge. That's like they just they kept hitting these tanks and I just kept them alive. He could, couldn't take models off the board. So it did its job, you know. Cool. So, after the game, something that, uh, you know, we like to ask. What advice do you have for a bottom third player? You know, someone facing your crew for the first time. What should they look out for when it comes to uh, playing into uh, Mecha Mima? Don't play my game. I'm a bubble crew. Don't play it. It's not going to turn out very well. It's not a lot of... There's not a lot of crews unless you're playing travis or like some of these really top players you know they know that game but if you're a newer player and you you're trying going versus it it's it's try to just focus on your task at hand whatever it is whether it's kicking the can or you know don't 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 chase my rabbit don't punch into my master if you don't have to it's there's no point in wasting ap on it if you don't got a crew that can can take me pound to pound which there's a lot of crews that can, you know, but if you don't get a crew like that, don't waste your time. It's, it's, you want to punch stuff. It's cool, but that doesn't win you games. What wins you games is scoring your points and staying on target. The game is all about pointing nothing else. It's, it's extra movements and flailing arms. It's like, it's cool to punch people. You know, I make the little Bioshock noises because my character has a drill. Okay. <laughs> I like doing that, but that's, you know, you, you just focus on what's at hand, the task. It's yeah, I got leave your mark, leave your mark. You know, it's Maul's, she's, in my eyes, I think she's really good, but there's a lot of gaps in her play. There's a lot of things that get around what she does, and uh, it's really easy to stop her her game plan. Um, and if 
once you stop that game plan, I don't, I don't want to say too much because if you face me, I don't want you to know my whole, uh, my whole strategy. You know, I just barely made it here. Okay, <laughs> welcome to being on the podcast because of, yeah. trust me, when you're on on stuff like this, people just start gaming every game they can against you. It's true, and that's when you throw stupid shenanigans at them because they'll never expect my bullshit. <laughs> so you had talked about um, some of the gaps in her play. And so if I was facing Ma for the first, you know, it's like we declare Ma, but I don't know if you're bringing Ma 1 or Ma 2. Okay, ah, we okay. know that you're one-tricking Ma 2, but like in in this hypothetical world where we don't know that, um, should I bring anti-armor? That's a question that I had wanted to ask you as as <laughs> definitely in that bottom third kind of player thing. Um, if I see Ma, should I be like, uh, I don't know if, you know, I, I don't know if they're bringing Ma 2 or not. My personal advice I don't build towards people's crews. I build a solid crew, and that's it. I play. I build a crew that I feel like can kind of do good in most scenarios. I don't go and look like... I played Jonathan the other day, and he tech-built Joss. Well, Jonathan's been playing this game a long time. He's very good at the game, like insanely great player, and he knows the game way better than me. I'm not smart enough to tech versus people, and maybe... I hope you guys are, but... To me, like I was saying earlier, it's like it's extra noise. It's like pick, you pick that crew, you sit on that crew, whether whoever it is, and you learn that crew. And in the end, your play will probably beat my play because you spent less time thinking about what I need to do to beat this guy to stop this character. It's like every there's eventually going to be a model that has irreducible, but am I going to change it? Or like I have two drills that I killed into Terra. It's like I'm not going to trade the the drills out just because I'm going versus Terra. You know, I'm going to play Terra and we're going to, I may lose them, but I'm going to square up, you know, and that's uh it's no point in, it's extra headspace. You don't got to build against people. You, you, you verse yourself is really what you end up doing. You end up tricking yourself and doing all this extra stuff. That's not necessary. It's like you get in the game, you know what your guys can do, you know, the counter to it. And it's like, if it happens, it happens. And I know that's kind of not the greatest advice, but it's like, you just kind of have to, it's like. I would rather stick to driving something that I'm used to than risking it for something else, you know? I got it. No, thank you. So we've got a new kind of question here. We've been asked to kind of add, and I love this uh, idea. So new player coming into Ma for the first time, they don't know what she does. So what are some rough gotcha mechanics or interactions that Ma brings to the table that a new player should watch out for so they don't get gotcha'd by okay. Ma and her crew. Um, it, if you're playing versus me, I'm gonna try not to got you because I, if you're new, especially, I don't, I don't like players that do that, and I try not to do that. But if it happens in a tournament, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna tell you every detail. You're in a tournament. I'm here to win. Uh, unfortunately for you, uh, but really, the big thing for her is that her gun. A lot of people don't expect it. Her gun is very scary so she has a harpoon gun that can drag you three inches and it has a trigger that i will pay a soul stone for every time it's called tetanus shot it gives the person staggered and drops a scrap marker and you're like why is that so good well every model in your crew now has a straight tunnel to the model i want and there is not a lot you can do about it and it is very underrated not a lot of players think about it i'm not thinking about this turn 
getting to you. I'm thinking about the next turn when I'm doing breakthrough and you didn't realize that I just dropped a scrap marker that just got to your back line. So Maul has height four and on Doug's tables, 90% of the things on the table, Maul can see over and she's got range 12. I don't care about damaging you. I don't, I, yeah, it's cool if I get it, if I get to hurt you, you know, I, I love that too, but that's just a bonus. It's like, I would rather just hit you for that min damage too, drag you three inches, drop a scrap marker, and then what I'm going to do after is I'm going to drop a pit trap marker with somewhere within that maximum, I forget if it's 10 inches or 12 inches, forgive me if I get it wrong, but that maximum 12 inch teleportation range, that way you'd least expect me to go ahead and just get behind your whole crew. I'm trying to get in the enemy lines when you least expect it. So now all of a sudden turn two, it's like, oh, oh, you thought you were just dealing with Ma Tucket charging you. No, you're dealing with my whole squad and they pulled up and it's really, really nasty. Second thing, 12 cups of coffee. You've got a 50 mil base, four inches of mm. range on that 12 inches and you're size four. You see over everybody. Nobody gets bonuses. It is so under like rated, or maybe it's overrated. I don't know, but I don't hear enough people talk about twelve cups coffee. I think for Bayou, considering I personal view is they're weaker than some of the other factions. Um, they still have great tools, but twelve cups of coffee, they have to have the best upgrade. I think that upgrade is insane. You just stopping an AP just says no. You can't do the AP. It, that's just an amazing thing. Yeah, um, the model that if I see a model with twelve cups of coffee, that model needs to die. Yeah, and yep. uh, the last thing that uh, even you know, me and Doug were just talking about in the very beginning, uh, scatter. Uh, scatter is a brutal, nasty ability that a lot of people don't know how it works. But basically, you're within three inches of Maul. I push you three inches away in any direction I choose. Yeah, and, unresisted. There's no card flip on uh, that. It's just push. Yep. It's yep. just push. So you're engaging me for something like covert operations. And no, I, I can no longer score the point. Ma activates. I run at you. Scatter all your guys off the points. I score. You don't. Last activation. Stuff like that. It's dumb. It's good. And it's, it's it works very well. And I don't have to punch you. I don't have to try to do her cool, like one, the only trigger she has on her melee, like teleport you, you know, or do anything crazy. It's just walk up to you, double walk, scatter you. You're off the point, you, you know, or break, you know, break through. There's, there's been times, really it's only one time where I've had <laughs> it, where I've, I've scattered somebody out of, uh, out of a breakthrough point, you know, cause they gotta be, they have to either be within four inches of you or they have to be in your back line. And, you know, like I've had one where I dropped a scrap marker and then just punched a guy, used the trigger, dropped down a hole and teleported him off the point. She has deceptively great mechanics that work so well. And because she turns pit traps and scrap markers, vice versa, she basically turns all her pit traps to scrap markers and scrap markers pits. It's amazing. You can just teleport them to anywhere. And now everything is everything is a a, a walking space for your whole crew. So, so what is it that's doing this teleport for you, by the way, for those who don't know? So there's an ability on most of uh, the cruise cards, other than Maul, has this ability called Ride the Rails. She basically, the in my mind, I'm thinking of my guys laying track and they're just driving on a steam engine. But it's more like they're bearing underground and coming up out of a hole. It's they can utilize anything that is a scrap marker or a pit trap marker. Well, when you're within six of sparks or you're six of 
uh, our uh, amazing Ma Tucket, they are now both. They act as both. And so that's why the tetanus shot and the pit trap you drop is so amazing because now it turns into a scrap. Now your guys can just teleport onto it. Um, and so those are kind of the small things. It's like the fact that my guys can burrow, they're deceptively tanky because even though they got six HP, three of my models have double armor, you know, and just small things like that that you wouldn't expect to hurt. Now that's cool. That uh, I, I wanted to interrupt, and excuse me for interrupting, but because uh, you were talking about the scrapyard mines, the ability on both Maw and on Sparks, where you can make scrap markers into pit trap markers, so that instead of a normal scrap marker, now it's a damage one and injured two pit trap marker, and then vice versa. If you have a pit trap marker, which Maw can put down, um, then it can turn into a scrap marker that allows ride the rail. So, anyways, that. I think is kind of a gotcha. And I wanted to um, uh, jump in with a question um, as talk on Reddit had asked about that and had a bunch of kind of questions for, and so this is newcomer kind of questions. There may be questions that come up where you're like, calling a TO, <laughs> you know, mm. you're calling the judge for, uh, uh, for clarification because you're like, I've got pit trap markers and I've got um, scrap markers and I want to destroy stuff and they're all affecting me and what the heck is up. And I think that that kind of fits within the gotcha. Uh, as well. And so I wanted to just touch base on those real quick uh, based on Aztec Aztec's questions. Um, so uh, they had asked some questions that had come up from them as they were playing with Ma 2 with a friend of theirs. And uh, they get pushed at the same time as an enemy model. And then, and so like basically that there's an enemy model and Ma that are work, being pushed at the same time, perhaps from the scamper ability. Um, that uh, on Maw, um, how does that work if you're now pushed into range of a pit trap? Now now her um, scrapyard mines thing comes into effect, whereas it might not have uh, if it hadn't been for the scamper first. Um, do, does that question make sense? And does and is that one that you could answer? Or is that one that uh, uh, we end up needing to, to, to call a judge for? So you, you dropped this to me uh, earlier. The order that it occurs is important there, that technically nothing really actually happens simultaneously in Malifaux. There, I mean, there's detailed breakdowns as to when things that are simultaneous actually happen. When it comes to simultaneous effects, so the way it reads is the active player or the player if with the initiative, there is no active player. So this is if it's, you know, during the end phase or during the start phase. So the active player chooses one of their models with one or more unresolved effects and resolves those effects in whatever order they wish. Then that player chooses another of their models with unresolved effects and resolves those effects in the same way, continuing in this manner until the player no longer has any models with unresolved effects. When an effect resolves, the entire effect resolves, even if it also affects a model controlled by the non-active player. Then the non-active player resolves as above. So things don't happen simultaneously. Yeah, and so the active player gets to choose. They get to choose their own stuff. Yeah. They don't get to go, I'm going to do mine, then you do yours, then I do mine. No, they, all of the active players go, then all of the non-active players go. So yeah, so Ma does a scamper. She's going to move her stuff around. Um, she's going to set it up to where now she's within a range of a pit trap marker that didn't use or a, i'm sorry a scrap marker that maybe didn't used to be a pit trap marker but now it is and then 
the non-active player goes. It would depend on the circumstances. When did the scoot happen? Was she in range of it before the uh, model got scooted or after the model got scooted? And so it ultimately depends on what it was. So resolve it as above, and it will depend on the specific circumstances, whether or not it was actually hazardous. Yeah. And so that, um, the destruction, the, the pit trap markers are destructible, but the scrap markers aren't destructible. Um, there's, if you're pushing through a, a scrap marker and a pit trap marker, it's actually a, a question of, is that two separate instances of hazardous or just one? That's one that we talked about. It's just one. Yeah, so the hazardous markers, all markers of the same name, and it actually says, i.e., pyre markers or pit trap markers count as the same piece of terrain for the purposes of the hazardous terrain trait. So if you get scooted through a scrap marker and a pit trap marker, well, that scrap marker is counted as a pit trap marker. So it's still only one. Fun fact, that rule was actually called out specifically because of Doug and I in the beta testing of third edition. That's spectacular. That's awesome. Just a fun little tidbit is because of us is why it's one iteration. Obviously, it's probably going to happen eventually anyway, but it was our game that actually made that happen. We, You had your uh, your field of death. Yeah, uh, I had like nine course markers around Santiago. Freeva had this ability where course markers counted as hazardous terrain within one inch. And I punched Santiago at full health through nine course markers. Oh my god. I did nine instances of single point damage to him, which got through his uh his lead line coat and is hard to kill and just fucking wrecked him in one AP. He didn't have a lead line coat because if it had a lead line coat, you couldn't have pushed him. Oh right, 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 right. But it got through his hard to kill and it just you know, stones didn't matter because it's nine instances of single plink of damage. And the uh, next week is when they're like, no, no, no. If it's the same name, it's one instance. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I was going to say, which actually really helps. Uh, thank God that they did that. But also, there's one thing that does get around it. It's the aura instance of a hazardous. So the, the pig um, has a hazardous aura, Vince Steam. And then there's the pit trap. Yep, that's separate. So it plinks for one, 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 one every time. And... Uh, the only time I ever beat Travis was doing that on his Hototo, and I had taken Hototo to half HP, and then he plinked himself to death. Awesome. So, but yeah, lots of things may come up, and so that's one of my biggest advices for for new players playing into, particularly Ma Two, is don't hesitate to make sure you know what you're doing or what your opponent is doing when it comes to pit trap markers plus scrap markers uh, and overlapping effects. And I see that in the notes here, you had the uh, last question that he had. He's asking about hazardous. Was like, do you get uh, damage? Uh, do you take the effects of hazardous only when you move or for any action? So the way hazardous works is if you move through hazardous or hazardous markers move through you, you take the effects of the hazardous. If you are standing in hazardous and you resolve an action, you resolve the uh, hazardous. So let's say this is the worst way it happens is, hey, you charge someone. So you move through the hazardous. You'll take the damage. Well, you'll, we'll just assume that hazardous is doing damage. There's hazardous that does other things. But you will take the damage from the hazardous when you move. Then you take a swing 
you'll take some damage from the hazardous when you take that swing. If you're still chilling there and you decide to resolve any other actions, you will get more hazardous then. I hope that clears that up for you uh, as talk. So yeah, great question. and That's uh, awesome. That actually helped me because I didn't know the charge was two-parter hazardous, so I've been doing that wrong. I could have been planking a lot more damage. <laughs> yep, it's when you resolve the move, and then you resolve the action, because the attack from the charge is a separate action than charge. Uh, I've used that a lot with Reva, where I charge into my Empire Marker to give her two instances of burning in order to get plus flips. So, Yep, Karis does shit, shit like that too. All right, so um, now we're going to get to what advice do you have for a middle third player coming into a game against Maw 2? You know, an experienced player looking to give you a challenging game, hoping they actually win if they play tight. Realistically, that's me. That's my bracket. So I'm basically giving myself advice. But I, I would say... Uh, I would say, really, the, the big thing about... Ma is that, like I said before, there's a lot of holes to her play. And for a middle tier player, you will have a lot more ease dealing with it compared to like a lower tier who doesn't really know what she does. So a lot of players that know what Ma's shtick is, they they have a lot more ease to shutting it down. Really, it's if I don't get that early connection to my portal, I don't... It's not super devastating, but just destroying that scrap, because my game plan is 90% always going to be the exact same. Shoot you, make a tether for my tunnel, whole crew is on top of the model I want to kill. And uh, that's for the end of turn one, start a turn two type situation. If you stop that, like you, you break that scrap marker, now I'm going to have to like get Maul or get somebody that's going to drop a scrap in there sooner, and I have to kind of play around that fact. And I think that's the key the key to the crew is if you control my scrap marker, you will you will control the game, at, the, at least the early game. And I, I focus on early game plays. Such as losing to minors early game, yes. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give to a top third player? What do you wish you had done differently in this game? And what did you learn from this game? Don't bury two minors turn one. First and second activation against Terra. Against Terra, that that was. I'm not sure that's advice for a top third player. I'm really not sure that <laughs> it, it's not. It's okay. It's <laughs> not. No, I I really. It's it. You know the thing is, is that the top third players they should be giving me advice <laughs> realistically because they're the guys stomping me every tournament. <laughs> I would uh, say this one then is that it's not the don't bury those there. A lot of top third players, they have their unpack down to a fucking science. Yeah. And it sounds like burying those two miners was part of your uh, pre-thought out unpack. <laughs> and understanding yeah. where you need to vary your unpack for the specifics of the game, I think would be a big uh, a big point here. That's kind of the main lesson you learned there. Yeah, it was the, oops, you knew you fucked up immediately there. But I think the bigger lesson is the don't get so in your unpack that you don't recognize when you actually need to tweak it. I 100% agree with that. I think that's, I'm very glad you said it like that. Um, you know, I may not have been thinking that, but I now I'm thinking that. Uh, 
But basically, really, that I would say for top third players is just that complacency is something that I see every now and then. Uh, like getting stuck on like doing one thing is ter- is is it tends to be the decider of a lot of games. Uh, a lot of games I've thrown leads because I really want to get this lever mark point when I could have just taken two turns to get the breakthrough point or secondary point or something. So I guess I would say that if anything. I mean, if you all, if you want to go into like something from your game, that's a good uh, that's a good thing for top tier players is you know losing focus of the points with him killing those miners early. Like that may have actually cost him the game because he couldn't score curse objects off those models, and those would have been easy scoring models later on in the game. Yeah, I, I, especially the way I play, I show I immediately unbury them turn two first activations in the middle of their crew. They're gonna die anyway. They're sacrificial, but I'm trying to get like a really easy, like kill a model, take a key person out, or like get you stuck. So it definitely was going to score off those guys for sure. Well, and he could have not given into the bloodlust and go, hey, those are going to be easy models to kill and done whatever he could to get first activation and murder one before you have a chance to pull that off. Yeah, that, that is true. He actually, I remember now, he did say that at the after the end of the game, he had brought that point up. He was like, he was weighing in his mind, would it be worth leaving them at one HP apiece to s- secure the score? But he, he thought at the moment that it was a better idea to uh, guarantee the kill. It guarantee the kills that they're not going to affect the board until later, and that and maybe that I would have put the those cursed objects on somebody an easier target to kill maybe, or... You know, which I ended up just both throwing them on my master, but still. And the test determined that that was a lie. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, out of that game, I'm still very excited because it was like a, uh, it was really cool getting to play uh, the person who got me into the game and like getting to use what he taught. Like, I mean, him talk a lot about the game or just painting and things in general and getting to use. Not only his advice, but all of you guys' advice from losing to you, Doug. You remember that game we played where I played Ulix 2 and you took my master like round one and I turned around and I almost brought the game back, but then you still you still won it. But I lost sight of what I was doing, but you still you still won it really well and like just took my master out. But games like that really taught me that you can come back from uh, anything pretty much. It's not like you just lose the game just because you lost your master turn one or two. It's like, or the game I played versus Brian, I, I killed his master without her activating turn three. And what did he do? Turned around and just killed mine right back. And then he scored, we were tied three, three at the end and he scored two points. And he pointed out an obvious, like I could have let him gone first and secured one of my points to maybe have won it or tied it. But instead, you know, and so like stuff like that is really really what like gets me excited about the game in general that's why i come back every thursday to play it's because like just these little things that these all these little moments that accumulate later to make you eventually land second place and go undefeated in a tournament awesome christian it has been a pleasure having you on the show finally congratulations on you know reaching that pinnacle uh, and uh good luck uh, you know next time around man yeah, thank you. Hopefully next time you'll see me and uh, I'm in the first place spot, you know, talking on here. <laughs> that, that, that's what you got to do. I believe in you. You got this! 
Students of Conflict is brought to you by Top Dog Design. Check out topdogdesign.com for all of your Malfo terrain needs. Top Dog Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! I'm glad you asked me. You know, I, I already don't talk enough. So I think... Uh, <laughs> Chris, I don't know where we are anymore. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to keep up. Uh, I'm trying to keep up with the notes and the game, but... Whee!